Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. As always, it's been a very busy week in a number of different trades. On the call today, we have Brian Dean, our head of LATAM research. We have Bart Osterveld, who covers sovereign risk. Uh, John Turek uh, with Central Bank. With that, uh, I think we'll move on now to the, you know both EM countries as well as some of these developed markets. This week's risk snapshot, where we tried to you know measure political and market risk in several different countries, we focused on Canada and France. And so I'd start with Canada. And I move to John Turek and say, from an economic position, Canada seems to be still in a very, very nice position. We've got oil prices that are surging, and you've got you know, the housing market, which continues to be really on fire. And you've had expansionary fiscal policy, which just yesterday, Prime Minister's budget bill passed the House of Commons prior to their recess. So you've had this you know, continued expansionary fiscal. What, what do you think here about Canada moving forward for the rest of the year? Yeah, thanks, Chris. I mean, I, I think, you know, that was a very decent summary. I mean, you think about kind of the, the combination of the macroeconomic tailwinds with kind of the policy tailwinds, and it seems to paint a picture of a fairly constructive backdrop for Canada. You know, looking at the economic, you know, if the U.S. is going to grow, as the Fed estimates, at seven this year, uh, Canada is going to be a prime beneficiary of that with oil prices, you know, Brent at $75. From a terms of trade external balance perspective, they're going to be very strong. And then kind of looking at the domestic demand picture, you know, we seemingly the uh, a never-ending housing bull market in Canada, you know, that's combined with, you know, a policy posture on the fiscal side that's very expansionary, even on a relative basis to the rest of the developed world. And then, you know, kind of coming full circle, you know, the Bank of Canada has proven to be, if not the most hawkish developed market central bank, who has already tapered asset purchases, you know, just, just two months ago and will likely continue to do so again in July. So, you know, kind of taking a 30,000 foot view, you know, Canada seems to have this, you know, very neat and elegant combination of, you know, economic drivers that on a cyclical basis, along with a policy backdrop that, at least from the currency perspective, should continue to be supportive. Now, do you think, you, you wrote in our note, though, that, you know, the, the risk to BOC policy here is that it becomes detached from the developed world and manifests itself in a Canadian dollar that's too strong. So where do you think Bank of Canada draws that line on a currency that's just too expensive? Yeah, you know, I think kind of going back to 2014-15 where – you know, the Canadian dollar had, you know, more of a structural re-rate on the back of, you know, the collapse in oil prices, taper chance term rally in the dollar, all of those things. You know, I think that, you know, it's still kind of it within its post of that era range. You know, the Canadian dollar is still not too expensive. So I think we're still, you know, a bit away from that, you know, maybe in terms of levels. I would say, you know, dollar CAD between 110 and 115 is maybe where you get there. But, you know, kind of looking back is, you know, I was thinking about especially this detachment of uh, Canadian monetary policy from the rest of the world in the context of a Fed that didn't have, show any interest rate hikes, you know, before 2024. And now it's looking back now is there's a Fed that showed, you know, two interest rate hikes in 2023. So, you know, I think that it's still on a relative basis, you know, the Bank of Canada is still going to be more 
hawkish than most others seemingly as they will have inflation at target. They don't have a flexible average inflation target. You know, it's still there. It's still a traditional target. They're going to have low levels of slack. Probably they estimate that slack will erode by the end of 2022. And I think then you can get more into a, you know, a traditional, or at least what we saw in 2018 kind of BOC hiking cycle. Whereas the Fed will still be late, but now at least we, well, we seemingly know that the Fed will be going. So, you know, to kind of sum it up, it's a bit more of a, in a relative sense, it's still, you know, Bank of Canada more hawkish than the Fed. But in terms of them being in two different worlds, that's less so the case after last week. What, you know, one final risk just that I'd be interested in your take on it, and it's really just a little bit of uncertainty in the political side of things, because it is very possible that we have a Canadian election in the next six to 12 months. I mean, does that throw any wrinkle in this outlook that you that you're forecasting? Because yeah, the conservatives really would would draw back some of the spending, but at the same point here, there's not really an incentive, even in the post-pandemic world, to draw uh, to to go to like an austerity type you know position. So the spigots will still be open, but there's a possible of a relative change towards you know more fiscal prudence. Yeah, you know, I think it's a really interesting question, and it's one I've been, you know, starting to grapple with, that there's there's probably maybe two trades within this. I think there's a, a first derivative and a second derivative. The first derivative would be that, you know, either the chances or the, rea- or the reality of the conservatives winning and a less expansionary budget deficit or less expansionary fiscal policy, like on a rate of change basis, the market will have to internalize that. But I think the bigger theme and why maybe it doesn't, it won't matter as much as maybe the headlines would suggest, is that the stock of savings because of all of this, you know, post-pandemic or during pandemic spending is already in the system. So I think that is kind of the more medium-term element that will kind of be more sticky is that, you know, like household balance sheets, corporate balance sheets in Canada are still really strong. So, and have improved over the pandemic. Going into the pandemic, you could argue, especially on the household side, the leverage ratios were getting a little stretched and they're still high. But, you know, as, you know, balances improve on the household side, I think that, you know, kind of the continued impulse of fiscal will matter less. Yeah, and that's really mirrored the, you know, this, a truly expansionary policy out of the Trudeau government. I mean, that expansion of savings directly mirrors these additional payments that they've, that they've been receiving. So, okay, well, thank you very much for that. I'd, I'd love to turn to France, which was our other country in focus. Bart, you were thinking about in contextualizing last week's regional elections in the context of future presidential elections. What, what takeaways do you have? Yeah, thank you, Chris. So we're, so we're less than a year away from the French presidential elections, which will happen late April, early May next year, almost inevitably in two rounds. And so these regional elections give give a sense of where the electorate is. If you ask the French today, between 25 and 30 percent of them would vote for Macron, the current president, in the first round, and about the same amount of people would vote for Marine Le Pen, the, the far-right candidate. So it looks, uh, and, and nobody else really polls above 15 percent, so it looks as things stand today that we will see a second round between these two candidates uh, next year, and then if you put them together in a second round, Macron narrowly pulls out the win if you poll the French today. So that continues to be our base case, but with some heavy caveats. One is the observation that in prior, in, in recent French presidential elections, the dynamics have shifted significantly up to very late in the cycle. So if you look at when Macron got elected, his path to victory was basically 
cleared in January or February of that year when uh, the center-right candidate got into trouble over, over accounting and fraud scandal. So there's significant shifts in electoral preference possible until quite late, so that's one caveat. The second is that the center-right looks really crowded. Xavier Bertrand, the regional governor of the area around Lille, which is the sixth largest economic area in, in France, did quite well but has almost the exact platform of Emmanuel Macron, so they would go head-to-head. And the left continues to be disunited. It is not really possible for a green candidate to be successful without the support of the Social Democrats or vice versa, and they haven't gotten themselves to unite behind a single candidate. It's not my expectation that they will do so until very late this year when they're absolutely forced by the poll numbers. So those are some things that might yet change, but as of now, our base case of a second round between Macron and Le Pen, which will be very tightly contested. And so then, JT, you know, when you think about that, you know, and, you, and you, you've talked about, you know, while the vaccine rollout was delayed, it has really picked up in time for the summer tourist season, and so therefore, you know, there, there should be material gains to the French economy in, in the coming months. I, I suppose that also alludes to a rather benign outcome for the next six to 12 months, bullish for the French economy. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, you know, as kind of going forward, you know, I think that the summer travel season was kind of like the key bar for the European economy to kind of join the rest of, you know, the more advanced world, or at least the Western world in terms of, you know, kind of getting up to stuff in terms of the reopening trade. And now I think that that's, you know, fully happening where Europe has these green passport initiatives. And it seems like, you know, at least from the high frequency data that, you know, the regional economy is doing really well. Um, and, you know, I think that that trend has, you know, a decent amount of tailwinds behind it. You know, of course, the political front will probably get, will maybe get messy closer to the time, but I think it's too far out for, you know, at least on the corporate side for sentiment to change, especially as, you know, a lot of the corporate side, at least on the supply side, is kind of having to readjust things. There's logistical backups, port issues. There's all sorts of stuff that I think that, you know, it's still on the corporate side, it's still going to be more about dealing with 2021 and then dealing with whatever political headwinds that they'll have have to face, you know, later on uh, or going into 2022. But I think, you know, at least for, you know, domestically, you know, I think France still it will have this domestic pickup over the summer. And I think also it'll get the rest of the, you know, kind of the regional juice as, you know, we start getting next gen EU disbursement and we kind of have like a synchronized European recovery. So it does seem, you know, fairly benign, at least in terms of the economic outlook going into what could be a uh, potentially uh, contentious political time, you know, going into next year. Yeah. Now, now let's let's shift over, shift gears a little bit here, and just touch on a couple of different central banks. As we've been on the call here, Bank of Mexico, Mexico raised rates unexpectedly by a, a quarter point. I'd like to get your take on that, JT, and and you know what you think uh, changed because this was again unexpected. Definitely a surprise. You know, our, our our kind of view on on Banxico has been that there was a turn at the last meeting, a little bit of a hawkish turn that could suggest that they were already becoming uncomfortable with inflationary readings. And the way they kind of contextualize their inflation framework was going to be that, yes, there are these factors that are persistent, but a lot of it is on the supply side. And as long as our Q2 2022 inflation outlook is still in line with our inflation target of 3%, then you know, we should be able to ride this out. And last statement already, it began, you know, to kind of get, they began to doubt that. And I think that was what set the stage, you know, for maybe a turn later this year. But as we see today, they waste, they're wasting no time. And I think, you know, 
one of the things that was noteworthy, I mean, we had an inflation print today in Mexico that was 6%. And, you know, I think, you know, taking cues from, you know, other central banks in the region where we've seen like Brazil is that Mexico has obviously had to, you know, come to terms. They're going to have to take a much more, you know, preemptive um, approach to policy setting and, you know, to kind of strengthen their framework. It seems like it needed, like the hikes needed to come now. And, you know, I think that, this is something that's becoming, you know, maybe more of a broader macro theme where, you know, a lot of central banks that previously wanted to write off inflation as transitory have just been dealing with levels now that even if they are transitory are too high to ignore. And this is, you know, what we're really seeing, you know, across the world. And we'll, you know, we'll talk about it when we get into, you know, the central European central banks. Yeah, no, I mean, definitely seeing a general tightening cycle, you know, begin to stabilize here in in Latin America. And you you mentioned, obviously, these uh, Central Eastern European countries, both the NBH in Hungary and the Czech National Bank hiked this week as well, right? Yeah, so, you know, not to be outdone within uh, a a regional tightening cycle is that now, you know, looking at the three major Central European economies, you know, we have Czech and Hungary who have hiked and Poland who has kind of really doubled down on their, you know, transitory view and that, you know, a lot of the inflation factors that are driving, you know, the current readings are not, there's nothing monetary policy can directly do about that. And so in the last two weeks, we've seen now all three of them present and all three of them have had slightly different wrinkles on their views of, you know, how this inflation process will play out. And I think, it, you know, it's setting up a really interesting time in Central Europe, you know, kind of going over what we saw this week. So check hiked for, you know, for the first time post-pandemic, kind of as expected at 25 basis points. But, you know, it was a fairly hawkish statement and hawkish press conference where they said, you know, that the that they're entering a phase of a, a gradual rise in interest rates, plural, so that, you know, these are not one-off adjustments. These are like the scope of the hiking cycle, we may not know, but this is a cycle. It's not just a hike. And this was especially, you know, important in terms of seeing what the MBH in Hungary did this week. You know, their turn toward signaling a hike came last month when the deputy governor kind of came out and said that in June there could be a commencement or there could be a hike, which is obviously huge because as we know, Hungary hasn't didn't hike interest rates at all last cycle. And this is the first interest rate hike in 10 years in Hungary. And I think that kind of speaks to, you know, what we were talking to before is that a lot of central banks that, you know, traditionally have had a dovish posture and really wanted to write off inflation as transitory, it just ran into levels that, you know, it just made them too uncomfortable. You know, and in Central Europe, I think this backdrop is, you know, increasingly trickier as the initial conditions that they went into the post-pandemic world were ones of high wage growth and very tight labor markets. You know, where we've seen in Hungary and Poland, it wasn't uncommon to have 10% wage growth. Um, so I think that's what kind of, you know, makes the debate a lot more lively. But, you know, coming back to the NBH, it is a, a central bank that, you know, is traditionally very dovish. And they also said that this will be part of a cycle. And this is not just a one-off. They said they launched the cycle interest rate hikes also plural. So, you know, we really are seeing a pretty broad turn in the central banking community. And, you know, within the region, I do think this sets up a lot of interesting trade where you have three pretty distinct reaction functions between Czech, Poland, and Hungary. Yeah. No, I, I think it's very interesting. I appreciate you, you know, covering this so closely for us. Now, you know, I, there's a couple other topics here, all really in the geopolitical realm of things that I want to discuss outside of central bank policy. You know, I want to touch on Russia. I want to touch on Iran, Peru. Brian, why don't we start in LATAM here? Do we have any more clarity over the presidential election in Peru and where that country is going from a policy standpoint? Uh, really, there's, there's nothing uh, 
definitive with respect to a conclusion for the vote count. Well, the votes have been counted. The several challenges to the results have been uh, submitted by the, the individual that is losing right now, Keiko Fujimori, who is the right, rightest candidate, candidate and the daughter of the former uh, president slash dictator. The electoral tribunal was expected to meet this afternoon after dismissing 10 or 11 complaints on the on the part of Fujimori. The uh, the meeting was canceled, and it looks as if the uh, the chief magistrate is uh, protesting the complicity of some other members of the electoral tribunal in supporting Fujimori's, in his views, illegitimate attempts to uh, override the election results. A long story short, it's a hot mess down there right now. The threat to this whole situation is that uh, Fujimori is the head of a political party, Fuerza Popular, that has the capacity to mobilize a lot of people onto the streets. And uh, the winning candidate, Pedro Castillo, from the far left, he has an enormous capacity to mobilize people from the, uh, the poor areas and the shanty towns and up in the Indian provinces and the mountains. You can see, uh, you know, if this situation isn't resolved quickly in a peaceful way, you can see a, a longer-term breakdown of political order and, and uh, increase in civil unrest that could be very destabilizing in Peru. It looks very ominous at this point. Bart, it brings me to my last two topics here, Russia and Iran. Iran's presidential election, Raisi, is now an ultra-conservative by how, you know, the media describes him, and he's out immediately thereafter and said that the United States needs to basically remove all sanctions on its energy sector as a precondition to any type of nuclear deal. I'm not sure that, you know, that's all that different from what the negotiators have been saying at the table for the last couple of months, but it seems like there are, there's a growing, you know, expectation that the United States could consider that option and could, in fact, come back to the JCPOA or some successor agreement. I mean, do you believe the headlines that, you're, that, that we're all reading? No, I think, well, as expected, he won the election because it was rigged in his favor, uh, <laughs> pre, preordained, and the, the reason to pay such attention to this man is that this puts him squarely in line of uh, harmonized succession, and he's likely to be the next supreme leader, in which case he's going to be around for, for a decade or two at least. So he's an important policymaker, and also in terms of the geopolitics of the region. This is a very complex agreement, and it's worth reminding ourselves that Iran is now out of compliance with it. So it really, at that negotiating table, I don't think has a lot of room to set preconditions uh, on others. The the rounds that they've had so far in Vienna, by all accounts, have been quite successful, which to me means that the easy stuff has been agreed on. But this is a multi-party negotiation involving China, Russia, uh, the other permanent members of the Security Council, and U.S. has not yet joined, uh, rejoined these uh, discussions. So, yes, in the end game, as an agreement gets very close, and Iran outlines how it's going to get itself back into compliance with the provisions of the original JCPOA, or signs up to a new list of requirements. I'm sure the removal of, of sanctions by the U.S. will come back onto the table, but the negotiations just got tougher because he is a hardliner, and he's, it's widely viewed in Iran that it'd be very desirable for the sanctions to come off, and that's broadly carried in the population as well. People want more economic opportunity. So he has a mandate to make that happen, but it's it's going to take some time. All right. And then finally here, Russia, Nord Stream 2, you know, pipeline, very contentious between the United States, Russia, and in Europe. Now it's actually functional. Gas is flowing. At this point, I mean, what do you think that the United States and Europe discussed at the G7 or prior 
you know, which kind of allowed for this successful completion of this pipeline. The Biden administration lost its opportunity to stop the completion by not acting on this as a first priority. In January or February, there may have been a window to impose sanctions hard enough to discourage companies from working on the pipeline. That was not the administration's priority because they were focused on repairing relationships with the Germans, uh, shoring up NATO again, so it just wasn't an, enough of a priority for them. And, uh, yeah, like you said, one of the two pipelines is now complete. It got completed last week. Gas is starting to flow on a test basis. It's not just what they talk about G7. There is upcoming visits. The Minister of Economic Affairs is on a plane today to Washington, Altmaier, and he said that discussions about North Stream 2 will be part of the agenda and that he's sure a compromise can be found. And then Merkel, uh, outgoing Chancellor Merkel, is due to visit in July and, and is also due to have additional conversations about the topic. It had been our base case since February or March that the pipeline would be completed. What we have also said is that it's likely that there will be some compromise from the Europeans on the topic, and that probably takes the form of reduced gas deliveries compared to the original plan. The Germans are eager to get out of this pickle also because they don't they don't really think it's fair that it's viewed as a German issue. The pipeline happens to terminate in Germany, but the optakers, you know, one is German, but one is French, one is Royal Dutch Shell, uh, you know, there's a whole range of big European multinational energy companies involved. Germany sees this as a private sector project that happens to land on its shores. It doesn't see this as a, an irritant in the bilateral relationship. Well, as far as irritants in the bilateral relationship between the United States, Europe, and Russia go, what do you make of this Black Sea, you know, dust-up that we had here with the British destroyer? Uh, yeah, that was interesting, and it, it looks like the Russians put some disinformation out there on the topic. So the, the passage of the British destroyer was by naval and military intelligence sources viewed as routine. It is also known that the Russian Navy was conducting exercises in that area, and it's normal for navies to accompany a ship that comes close to the edges of its territorial waters. Now, whose territorial waters those are, the Russians have one view and the rest of the world has another view. So this happened to be close to Crimea, which is occupied Ukrainian territory, and that's how the British Navy and the British politicians would see it. And so that's, that's really the crux of the disagreement of what I understand from the exchange. British Navy was quick to emphasize that in terms of their opinion, everything was routine. So maybe there's presence of too much media, too much social media, because the, the Russians eagerly blew it up. Uh, we covered a lot of ground. I appreciate everybody for, for chatting today. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.